In our lesson this morning, we began uh, by talking about uh, the idea of singleness in the church, and we, we spoke about how there is an important and valued place in the church, not only for families and for uh, husbands and wives and children and grandparents, but also for people who don't marry, also for people who um, are, are now widowed, or, or we talked about uh, in several ways in which people uh, experience singleness, whether it's having never married, or it's through divorce, or it's through uh, being widowed. And how each of them in the Bible has a special way in which they can serve God right as they are. They can live a rich, fulfilling, valuable, Christian, faithful life just as they are. And as we talked about that, what I want to do tonight is focus on that, that third group, uh, the, I, the, the group of, of widows. Because when I think about my Christianity and I think about my Christian walk, when I think about some of the people who... I've known who have been the most faithful and committed and loyal and uh, active Christians, oftentimes they are the widows in the church. They're people who have served the church in uh, a lot of ways, uh, but they've served the church um, with their time and with their effort and with their energy. Uh, And a lot of times the people who have done that, uh, who have made a, a profound impression on me, have been the widows who have been faithful in their service to God. Um, When you read through the Bible, and when you look at early Christianity, and and hopefully when you look at Christianity around you, something that you'll see is that the church and widows have always had a very strong relationship with each other. Um, Most churches that I know of have a a strong group of widows who are uh, part of that church and part of the work that goes on there. But you see that even in the earliest days of the church. Uh, This morning we talked about Jesus being single uh, as as one of our first examples. But there's something else in the family of Jesus that I think is interesting. Um, It's highly likely that his mother was a widow, that Mary was a widow, and that Jesus uh, cared for his widowed mother. Uh, One of the ways that you can kind of piece that together, we don't have anything in the Bible about the passing of Joseph or when that might have happened. But you do have Jesus um, having his father and mother in the birth stories, but you never actually see his father appear again in the rest of the stories. Even uh, at times when his brothers and sisters are mentioned, even when his mother comes out, Joseph isn't, isn't there with them. And we don't know what exactly happened. Maybe he just isn't mentioned or, or, or what. But uh, I think it's highly likely that Mary was probably a widow. One other clue is that while Jesus is dying on the cross in the Gospel of John, He looks to the beloved disciple, and he looks to his mother, who's there by the cross, and he says, woman, behold your son, and then he says to the beloved disciple, behold your mother, and he's telling him, basically, I want you to be the one who is now treating her like a mother, and the passage ends by saying that the beloved disciple then took her into his home from that day forward. Well, if she was still married to Joseph, that'd be a weird thing to do. Um, so she probably had been relying on her son. And that's the way things tended to work in uh, an ancient patriarchal home structure, whereas you would have uh, the patriarch of the family, who would be the oldest living male, he's the one who would take care of the family. Um, and when he passed, it would be his son who would take over the family. and In that case, it would be Jesus. Well, Jesus is, in that case, uh, giving his life on the cross, and so he's not really going to be able to anymore. One thing that's interesting is rather than passing the responsibility on to a brother, uh, which would probably be the norm, Jesus 
asks his beloved disciple to do it. Because Jesus has such a strong idea of the spiritual family, and because she has been with them for a long time, that uh, the beloved disciple is the one who Jesus is as the most, uh, the most appropriate to take on that role of being her, her son. But in the ancient world, being a widow... We're going to look at a passage that talks about different types of widows, but being a widow could be a very dangerous situation. Uh, it could be a situation where you were left in complete destitute. Um, in a patriarchal home, if the father passed away, it was reliant upon the sons to then take care of their mother and the rest of the family. But if a widow didn't have sons, or if the sons were scoundrels who refused to do so, or, uh, you know, there could be a number of reasons if the sons had died. There are a number of instances in the Bible where you read about a widow whose uh, husband had died, and so she's a widow, and then her oldest son dies, or her only son dies. And in those cases, a couple of interesting things happen. In, uh, in three of them, uh, that widow's son is raised back uh, from the dead. Uh, you have Elijah and Elisha who do something like that. And then you have Jesus himself. Uh, he meets a widow in, in Nain and he ends up raising her son. And in each of those instances, without that, that woman has no one there to provide or help care for her. And it wasn't common in that time for a woman to be able to, especially an older woman, to be able to provide for herself. And so even going back to the law of Moses... There are, there are structures in place to make sure that families are provided and taken care of. But there are people who could occasionally fall through the holes. Uh, widows sometimes were one of them, and orphans were often one of them. And so that's why God becomes known as the God of widows and orphans. Because he's the one who, even when society breaks down and you have these people in need, God's the one who loves and cares for these people. And what often happens is God will put laws in place to make sure that Others will care for orphans and widows also in the society uh, when it would be easy to ignore them. God wants to make sure that they're protected. And so caring for orphans and widows becomes, you can read through Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is saying that he hates the worship taking place in Israel. And you come to find out one of the reasons why is because they're not caring for orphans and widows. It's like there are orphans and widows in your society who are being neglected. And then you're coming and you're worshiping like everything's fine, and I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your worship until you start taking care of those who are in need. Uh, in, the, in the book of James, chapter 1, pure and undefiled religion before the Lord is this, that you visit the orphans and the widows in their distress, and you keep oneself unspotted from the world. Uh, the idea of caring for orphans and widows is, throughout the Bible, uh, a very important task in ancient Israel. It's a very important task that you see Jesus doing even while on the cross, and it's one of the responsibilities that the church has uh, to take care of those. In fact, when you look at the gospel of, or not the gospel of Acts, but uh, I guess you can call it that. It's a continuation of Luke, but when you look at the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 6, one of the early controversies that arises in the church deals with the feeding of the widows and how some widows who are uh, native Jews, uh, they are being fed first and some of the Hellenistic widows are being neglected in the feeding of the widows. But notice even in that passage what the church is doing from its earliest days. It's making sure the widows have meals. It's making sure that the church has taken on the responsibility of feeding widows in their society and, in, and, and among their community. And when they do realize that there is some prejudice taking place so that some are being neglected, they make sure that a, they put a stop to that prejudice and they assign uh, some servants uh, or some people to serve. And that's one of the first places where you get 
the verb for, form of the word deacon for people who are going to be servants in the church, uh, that they're going to start serving and making sure that these widows are all taken care of. And so one of the first acts the church does to help solve this problem is to assign specific people chosen by the Holy Spirit who will feed the widows. Because uh, feeding widows and taking care of the widows was always a responsibility and a job of the church. There's an interesting letter. This is about 250 or so A.D. So it's 150 years you know, after the end of the New Testament, after the end of the first century. The church continues. And one of the tasks that you see the church continuing to do is to take care of widows. There's a letter written from uh, Bishop Cornelius from the church in Rome to a church official in Antioch. And in that letter, he lists uh, some of the the numbers on the the role there at the church in Rome. And he mentions, I think, 46 presbyters. He mentions a number of deacons. And then he mentions 1,500 widows and peoples in need who the church is caring for. And in that, you get the idea that there is a large community of widows who have become associated with the church. And there's probably good reasons for that. In ancient Roman society, you didn't have uh, a welfare system or you didn't have any protective systems in place to take care of those who were left on their own. But the church sure provided one. That was one of the responsibilities of the church was to make sure that people didn't go neglected, go starving, go without their basic necessities. And first on the list of people being taken care of were orphans and widows. And so widows would have... They would see the gospel and the love of God full force through the church, and they would see the self-giving love of this community, and they'd think, that's a community I want to be a part of. That would open up the door to them to hear about Jesus. And so in the early church, widows were a huge part of the growth of the early church throughout the Roman world. Uh, And so the church benefited tremendously from uh, their service to widows, and widows benefited tremendously from the service of the church as well. Widows in the church have always had a a strong and essential and tight-knit relationship. Uh, And it goes back to even the earliest days of the church. It goes back to the earliest practice of the church. And you see it in the New Testament. What I want to do in the lesson tonight is look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we get Paul's lengthiest discussion about this topic. Uh, And basically, I think you have Paul giving some very practical advice to the church there at Ephesus, where Timothy is serving, about how it is that you don't lose all of your resources, but you also ensure that as many of the, the widows are helped as possible. There's a lot of widows who need help. And so... The church doesn't have limitless resources. You wish that it did, but no church does. Every church has to, to strategize how you help as good as possible and how you help, help as many people as possible and what areas you're going to make sure that you're helping people and all of that. And so Paul is actually going to get into uh, the budgeting a little bit uh, for the church at Ephesus as to how it is that you make decisions about how to help widows, how to make sure that they're taken care of, and how to make sure as many widows as possible get taken care of without the church losing all of its resources so that they can't help others. And so 
He'll talk about some widows who the church helps, some who hopefully their family takes care of. If their family's a Christian, they better be taken care of. Uh, some who can uh, get married again. And he, he comes up with a, a number of different practical ways to make sure that as many widows as possible get the help that they need to make sure that they are cared for and, and taken care of. Again, a reason why is because in this ancient society, if you did not have the church helping them, then you generally had nobody helping them. Uh, if their family wasn't there for them, and if the church wasn't there for them, there was no Roman system in place to help care for people who fell through the cracks. What happened is you lost your home, you went starving. You know, that, that's what happened in ancient Rome. It was a, it was a rough place to live. Um, some of the first examples of a Roman welfare type of system to make sure that those who have the least are provided for actually come from Christians. Um, what I mean is there was, uh, even after uh, Constantine, that famous Roman emperor who legalized Christianity in the, in the ancient Roman world, there was an emperor who came after him named Julian. He sometimes is called Julian the Apostate. And he was a pagan. And I think he had been raised in Christianity, but he, he rejected it and despised it and thought that it was for the weak. And, and he liked the traditional pagan religions of ancient Rome, and he wanted to revive those again. But he was having a problem as he was trying to do that. The problem was the people would rather go to the churches than go to the pagan temples. And he says, well, the reason why is obvious. When you go to the churches, there's all this philanthropy that they're doing. Like they, they keep helping people. They keep taking care of the poor. They keep taking care of the widows. They keep offering food to people. They have these love feasts that everyone's invited to and everyone gets these meals there. Like he, he mentions some of the specific practices of the church where people are being fed in society and people are being cared for and clothed and helped. And so he says when they go to the pagan temples, they don't get any of that. So start helping people. Start putting things in place there so that you can redirect the masses away from the, the atheist churches. He, he called them atheists uh, because they rejected the Roman gods. Like we, in our culture, we would never think of Christians as atheists. We're the ones who are theists. Uh, but he would call Christians atheists because they rejected all of the Roman gods. And so they're like, they don't even believe in gods. Uh, but, but that was his strategy. So it's, it's an ironic twist that the way secular culture started caring for the poor was out of competition with the church who had been caring for the poor. But all of that is to say at the time this is written, you didn't have anything like that in Rome. That doesn't exist for a long time in Rome. And in most cultures, you didn't have anything like that. And so the church had responsibilities to these people to try to help in whatever ways they possibly could. And so if you if you are the only way to help a lot of people in need and you don't have uh, full, like, limitless resources, what can you do to strategize to try to help as many people as possible? I think that's what you're getting here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, a strategic approach to helping widows in as many ways as you possibly can. So, let's begin in verse 3. And we'll see some of what, uh, what Paul does here and, and who he says to help, who to, to give resources to and all of that. Uh, in verse 3, he says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. At least that's what my translation says. And even in that verse right there, there's a little bit probably that needs to be unpacked. Um, so some of your Bibles for where mine says widows indeed might say true widows or, or tr truly widows. Or uh, uh, basically it's the idea of, of 
people who are legitimately really needy widows, like people who they don't have any other means of, of, of sustenance or, or help. They are widows, and they're, they're completely in need. Um, when he says honor them, he is not saying to salute them as they walk into a door. Uh, he's not saying just to show them respect and to say ma'am or sir or anything like that. Uh, honor is often uh, used as a way of financial compensation. And that becomes really obvious as you, as you go through the text. He's talking about how can the church actually help support these people. Um, the same is true in, in verse 17 when he talks about uh, honoring elders. Uh, he says, uh, elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. He says they should be supported as well. And the reason he gives in verse 18 is because you're not supposed to muzzle an ox while it's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So, so it becomes pretty clear there that he's talking about financially, uh, helping support those who are elders, who are also preachers and teachers. Uh, they, they need some help doing that. Um, and so the idea of honoring, even going back to the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. That, that's probably more than just saying yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. That's going to talk about uh, even in their old age, when they're in need, you help care for them, you support them. One way that that's easier to do in their society is that you often had uh, households that had multiple generations living in them. So when the, the patriarch passed, when the, the, the father of the whole household passed, you still have his sons and their families still kind of living together in the same area oftentimes. And so the, the widowed mother, she's not, she's not on her own. She still has her family there with her. And so what he's going to talk about is there's different kinds of widows. There are some widows who, when her husband passes, she doesn't have any sons. She doesn't live with anyone. She, she's in complete need. Uh, you have others who the husband passes, but they still have their son there that they're living with. Uh, he's going to have some responsibility here. So in verse 3, he tells the church to honor, which is financially support widows who are truly widows. But, verse 4, if the widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Okay, so remember, you don't have limitless resources. How can you make sure that widows who have children are taken care of? Well, their children better be doing that. Um, he's going to say here in just a, a little bit in verse uh, 7 and 8, he says, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the church has a responsibility to make sure that its members are taking care of their family. So if, if the church there at Ephesus has a son, and his father dies, and his mother is in need, and she's starving, and he refuses to care for her, well, then that son has denied the faith. 
part of being a Christian is doing that. He's worse than an unbeliever. He has rejected an essential part of what the gospel call is, which is you take care of your family. You take care of your mother when she's in need. And so notice Paul places a very high priority on this. He doesn't say you're just being a rude son or that that's impolite or anything. He says you're worse than a pagan if you won't do that. Do you know why? Because pagans would probably take care of their mom. If you won't do it as a follower of Jesus, then you're worse even than them. You've denied the faith that you've already claimed to have. So teaching the church to take care of their family is one way that you take care of widows. And that doesn't necessarily come from the church treasury. Uh, That's something that, that you can ensure that they're taken care of. But you're doing so based on the generosity and the love of the family unit itself. So that's one way that Paul tries to make sure the church helps, but not necessarily through limitless resources, but through family members taking care of one another. That's your Christian responsibility to do. Then uh, in verse 5, he talks about those who don't have sons, who don't have uh, their, their husband is gone, their children are gone. They don't have a family to their, take care of them. He says in verse 5, Now she who is a widow indeed, a, a true widow, who has been left alone, and has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers day and night. That's the type of widow he's talking to. Someone who is a faithful Christian who has fixed her hope on God because that's the only place she can put her hope. She can't put her hope in, in someone to provide for her financially now uh, because she doesn't have anyone. She's alone. But she can fix her hope on God and pray to him night and day. The church is to notice people like that. Uh, the church should pay attention when it sees wid- women or, or widows or uh, people in that situation who have no one else to care for them. In verse 9, he's going to talk about how it is, uh, talking about putting widows on the list. And that's kind of an interesting phrase. Uh, and there's some debate about what exactly this wist- it list is. Um, is this list... Simply a list of, uh, these are the names of the, the women who were trying to help support, or the widows that were trying to help support in this situation. Uh, they don't have any family to care for them. They don't have, like, this is our list of people that we're helping financially. Or is this perhaps more than that? Also a list of women who help serve the church in some way also. Um, kind of, I mean, this is, so I'm not saying to have, uh, like, like a, uh, a convent of nuns or anything, but this is a passage that they would go back to to see. You know, you have very early on church keeping a list of of unmarried women uh, who are going to be able to serve the church and who have a history of serving the church. And, and I, I mean, I do think you have the idea here of these are people that they have a life of faithfulness, and the church is going to help support them as they keep helping to support the church. Um, that's not an exact equivalent to, to what you might think of with the, the convent. But uh, I do think you have an idea like that of people who are uh, widows, who are faithful to the Lord, being cared for and provided for by the church, uh, and they're also going to uh, continue in their service to the church. In verses 9 and 10, he gives a, a list. And it's interesting because this list echoes in a couple of ways, like the list you see earlier in First Timothy for deacons and for elders. Here you have a list for the women to put on of qualifications, basically, for women to put on a list where they will be uh, cared for financially. He says a widow is to be put on the list only uh, if she is not less than 60 years old, the wife of one man, 
Now, that's, that's an interesting phrase right there. My translation says, having been the wife of one man. Uh, and the reason why it says having been uh, is because she's a widow. And so you know that it's past tense. But in Greek, it's just three words. It is the word uh, a one husband wife. Basically, a one-man woman. Uh, and it's the, almost the exact same phrase as the qualification for elders, a one-woman man or a one-wife husband. It's only three words in Greek. It's just the word one, it's the word wife, and the word husband for the elder. And it's the word one, it's the word husband, and the word wife for uh, the widow. And, but the idea of it is someone who has been... Uh, faithful in their marriage to one person. Uh, they haven't been, uh, you know, running around on them. They haven't been, uh, I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think, I don't think it's saying if this woman had a husband and then remarried and then he died, uh, that, uh, let her starve. You know, I, I don't think the idea is if she's had more than one husband at some point in her history, she cannot be taken care of. Some people apply it that way when it comes to elders, and I don't think that's that's necessary in the text either. Uh, but what you do have is, I think, the idea of marital fidelity. Um, this is a woman who has practiced that, just like you would want your elders to practice that. Here is a person who has practiced that. In verse 10, it says, Having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, uh, which hospitality is also uh, an important one that you see echoed back earlier, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work. So this life of a faithful servant of the Lord, you can put her on the list because you know that she's going to be someone who's going to serve the church and you can help uh, financially take care of her. Um, and so I think you're starting to see a, a couple of, uh, of ways in which the church is helping widows. You have some who are widows indeed and they have no family to care for them at all. You have some where you make sure that the members of the family are there to take care of them. You have some who are put on a list. Uh, some of these may be the same as the widows indeed. Uh, but you have those who have a lifetime of service to the church who you're helping to support now uh, as you would others who are servants of the church. And as you would in verse 17 when he starts to talk about elders and he talks about honoring those who do work for the church. Um, and so you see a lot of these things. He's finding ways for the church to keep helping. He does get into a situation in verse 11. What about younger widows who are not 60 years old and, and maybe don't have that history? Maybe they're, they're young and through some tragic unforeseen event their husband dies. What he says in verse 11 is, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desire in disregard of Christ, they want to get married and thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. That's a, that's a strange passage for a couple of reasons, but I think, I think if we think about it, we can, we can figure something out about it. Uh, because he says, basically, don't put younger women on there because they'll become sensuous and want to get married. And you think, well, like... Like, is it wrong for them to want to get married? Uh, you know, is that a, and, and absolutely not. In fact, that's what he's going to tell them to do. He wants them to get married. And so what is he thinking? How are they doing something wrong by getting married? And I think the, uh, at the end of verse 12, when he says they have set aside their previous pledge, I think it's probably a reference to the women who were put on the list who are going to be serving the Lord uh, for the church and, and receiving financial help for that. 
they have probably taken a pledge that they're not going to get married, they're going to serve the church and remain to be single. They're going to continue in that state. But if you have a younger widow who she's receiving the money from the church and then she goes and gets a husband, she doesn't really need that money from the church because she's... And so to make that sort of pledge and promise to God that you're going to remain single and serve the church and then you decide to go back on that, that would be a way of breaking her word and breaking a commitment that she made to Christ. And so that's what he doesn't want to have happen. Uh, and, And he also, I think, has the concern in verse 13... He says, at the same time, they go around and they learn to be idle. And they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips, busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. I think, I think Paul has the concern that you'll have uh, a young widow who has her entire life ahead of her. And now she's being supported, but she doesn't have much to do. And so she just spends her time going around gossip. She's not serving like she should. Whereas perhaps someone who's older uh, would be doing that. Someone who's younger can get caught up in maybe boredom and boredom can lead to some things that aren't very good. And so he says what he'd prefer younger women to do to make sure that these widows are taken care of in verse 14. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep the house, and to give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And notice that final phrase, some have already turned aside to follow Satan. I'm wondering if one of the reasons Paul is saying that is because there have been some case studies that he's aware of in that church. Maybe there have been some younger widows put on the list, and they've ended up marrying someone, maybe even someone outside of the faith. They've ended up leaving the faith, and he's saying that has not worked out well. Some have already done that when we put them on the list, and so let's try to keep this list that we're talking about for these type of people because they are the ones who have generally had the most uh, success in us helping them and them helping the church and, and making sure that everyone's cared for. But in this list so far, we have a couple different kinds of widows who have come up. We have widows who have families, and he says, if you, they have Christian family, that family better take care of them. That way we can make sure the widows are cared for. You have widows who don't have family, and what he says is the church ought to take care of them. If their family won't do it, that's the church's responsibility to do it. Or if their family doesn't exist or can't do it, uh, the church takes care of them. There are some widows who are going to be serving, and we want to make sure that the church takes care of them. There are some widows who are very young. And in that case, encourage them to, to get married and to, to continue on their life and to have children. And in that way, they can still be cared for and provided for. Um, perhaps, because as you go through here, if you're like me, you can think of exceptions. You can think of, well, well what if you have a young widow who can't get married? What if, what if no one wants to marry her? Uh, you know, or, or what if that's like, what, what do you do in that situation? Um, and and he, doesn't, he doesn't cover every possible scenario that can come up with a, with a widow. Perhaps if she's a younger widow, he does have in mind she could return to her father's household or, or, or her father could be the one who cares for her also until she's married. That's generally what happens in, uh, is you have uh, a wife who, if she's young, her father's caring for her until the marriage happens. And if her husband dies and she's still young, she would just return to her father's household. That's what, uh, in the book of Ruth, that's what Orpah did. Uh, remember, she was married and she joined the, the household uh, with Naomi. But, but then when her husband died, she went back to her father's household. And so he might have something like that in mind, you know, but 
But rather than being put on the, you know, supported by the church for the next 60 years or something, uh, try to start your family again. Um, And then you have in verse 16, if any widow, uh, woman who is a believer has dependent widows, or if any, if any believing woman uh, has widows under her care, some translations say, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed, meaning it can help the, those who are truly widows. So that final uh, verse 16 seems to be the idea if you perhaps have some wealthy women at the church or wealthy families at the church, uh, look out for the widows and they can help take care of them. And so just looking at these verses right here, Paul lays out a lot of guidelines for making sure that you have people who are taken care of. Um, you have widows who don't have anyone to care for them. Well, the church cares for them. You have widows with family, so the family cares for them. You have widows who can serve the church, and the church helps take care of them. You have younger widows who you hope to get married, and so they can have family lives and, and be supported that way. And you have perhaps wealthy people in the church who can take care of, of some of the widows as well. And in that way, the church is trying... Only through generosity is the way this happens, but trying through generosity to make sure that as many people are cared for as possible. Now, one thing Paul doesn't say is tell them to go get a job. And again, I think that's a cultural difference, you know, whereas uh, there, are, there are more opportunities in our culture. But I do find it interesting that Paul, he doesn't tell the church, take on every every case you can and try to help. He recognizes that there's a lack of resources, so he tries to make sure that the church and the widows, there's like, you have a number of avenues available to make sure people are cared for, whether it's wealthy members, whether it's family, whether it's uh, doing some work for the church, whether it's, uh, you know, like all of these different, whether it's marrying again. And I would imagine if the society was more like ours, uh, there could also be some things on there about finding work and things like that. But, but in his society, that just wasn't generally uh, an option. It's not saying never an option. You do have some examples of it. But, uh, but he is, in his culture, trying to find ways to make sure that everyone can be taken care of and provided for and how the church can do that. And I don't know, when I, when I read things like that, it makes me think about, uh, all right, when we look around and we see people who are in need, what are things that we could do? What are things that where we could try to strategize? The church doesn't have unlimited resources. No church does. Um, you can't, you can't, you can't just like build a million homes and, and, and you know, it's, it's, but, but what can you do? Um, can you, uh, can you help people find jobs? Can you help people find shelter? Can you, can the, what, what does the church have in the budget? But you start looking and you start trying to strategize ways. And that's one thing I, 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 as I appreciate, I, I go to elders meetings uh, here. And one thing that I think as a congregation, uh, we don't hear a lot about, but you should, you should know is taking place is that you do have some very godly elders here who do hear about people who are in need and who often, like Paul does right here, try to strategize ways in which the church can help and we can find help for those people uh, in, in many different ways. I've been, I've been blown away by the generosity of some of our elders, by some of the members who have gone to the elders saying that they've been willing to help. And 
you know, from my perspective, I get to see a lot more than a lot of people do of the good things that are done for people who are in need, for people in the community, uh, for people who are part of this church. And, uh, and so that's one thing I would say to be thankful that you have elders who take this job seriously. But also I would encourage everyone to keep your eyes open and try to think about what are ways that you can find that you can help people who are in need. Um, That was an essential part of ancient Israel's task in the ancient world. That was an essential part of the church, and it's a part of our job and our task as well. If you're a Christian, it's part of your vocation. Uh, And so uh, I just want to encourage us each in that. If there's anyone here tonight who would like to become part of the church, if there's anyone here who'd like to become a Christian, you can name Jesus as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away in baptism, and live for him. If you have the need, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.